If you go any higher than that, you're bumping up against that, you might start to feel like you're quite literally losing your mind. And what I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean losing your mind as in that fear center of the brain, the amygdala shuts down these top thinking areas of the brain. So you don't have access to choices and decision-making. If you get too worked up, too distressed, these areas go out. It's not just with kids, it's for all of us. This is just what happens. Resilience team is back again for episode four of our webcast, and we are um, super excited today to talk about strategies for regulation and some brain research. And we've got super awesome guests that we um, can't wait to meet. So today, our guest is Dr. Jennifer Sweeten. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. Um, she's internationally recognized as an expert on trauma um, and neuroscience of mental health. So we can't wait to dig in with her. But uh, we're going to get started this morning with just a moment of gratitude. So um, quick little introductions and something you're super thankful for this morning. Um, so I'm Katie Perez, if you don't know me. And um, this morning, my moment of gratitude is I'm just going to give a, a shout out to the nurses at Dr. Epps office at Hutchinson Clinic. Um, my daughter's having surgery tomorrow and anxious mom is worried for her anxious daughter and just got off the phone with a nurse who did a really nice job of calming my fears so I can calm my daughter's fears. So um, just thankful to have doctors and nurses that that see that anxiety is a real thing and are willing to um, coach you through that in a busy morning. I'm sure she was way too busy to spend 15 minutes on the phone with me. Um, so nurse, thank you. I don't remember her name. That's bad. Rebecca, <laughs> what are you thankful for this morning? Uh, so um, we did parent-teacher conferences last night. We were at the high school, and my oldest kid has English first hour, which first hour for a 17-year-old is a tricky, tricky time of day. And his English teacher just really let him know how much she appreciated uh, his contributions. And I saw a light bulb come on for him. Uh, he's super emotive and relational. And I saw in that moment that somehow what she said connected him to her. And so I'm really curious to see. Uh, so I'm just really grateful that she really spoke to him yeah. about their their relationship together. So it was, it was a cool moment. I am grateful for the connection of educators who are coming together in Facebook groups, uh, are sharing out what they are currently doing in the face of this COVID-19 uh, mm -hmm. epidemic, pandemic, panic uh, situation. Um, there are teachers globally who are coming together to say, this is what we're doing. We've been shut down. Our school's been shut down now for a month. Our school has schools in Asia. Uh, we've been shut down for two weeks. We're talking about shutting down. Nobody's even talking about shutting down. We're not talking to our teachers. We are already preparing our teachers and to have a whole plethora of tools, strategies, and good practices in place. I'm really grateful for the teachers who are sharing that information and policy. Yeah, yeah. great. Community matters. Jennifer, how about you? Do you have a moment of gratitude yeah, this morning? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess my shout out would be to my husband uh, who has been fantastic as usual, but this week is especially intense and I've been working a lot of long hours and will be this week. And uh, he's taking care of like everything else in life. So 
it's allowed me the, the space and flexibility to do uh, some good stuff that I need to do. So I'm thankful for him. So we always start with a social media minute and just kind of looking through um, our own feeds and thinking about things that are that we're seeing on um, classroom happening in classrooms or people discussing around the trauma informed movement. Um, and so, does anybody have kind of one this morning? I I brought something. If nobody else has has one for today, anybody else? I have, but I'm excited to hear yours. Okay. Well, mine is I, I've been I talk a lot about. Um, how educators need to take care of ourselves, right? We need to, uh, this is hard, heavy work that we get into and the risks for burnout and maybe compassion fatigue can be high for us. But um, I ran across an article the other day about how the self-care movement is dangerous for educators. Um, and it was a picture of a beautiful lounge. Like I, I would like that lounge in my building. It had twinkle lights and couches and an espresso machine and all of this stuff. But the whole article was talking about how that 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 can be damaging to our profession to look like we need to have those rooms. But at the same time, our job is hard and we do need a place to decompress and regulate ourselves. So just kind of thinking, what is that balance? What do I know what we believe, I think, about self-care, um, being that it's not about self-care, it's about co-care. Um, so just kind of curious other people's thoughts around self-care versus co-care. Are we going too far in this, I don't know, hype over taking care of yourself? Are we not going far enough? What do you guys think? Before we jump in, I want to say, guys, I'm not just continuing to work here. Uh, we are live, so feel free to type in questions or your own comments, and I will be happy to drop it out here to the panel, too. So anyway, yeah, good thoughts. Yeah. I can't wait to hear from you all. Yeah, I think, uh, so I would have a lot more curiosity about the idea that we need to um, be cautious about presenting to the rest of the world that teachers um, are needing a place to go regulate uh, that this conversation about helping our staff with their own stress response system uh, puts us in a in a light that could be damaging like that gives me concern uh, our kids and our communities uh, we're showing up with different challenges and the magnitude of the challenges that are showing up for mm -hmm. our teachers, it feels overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, anytime we're paying attention to our stress response system, that's that's a good thing. Because uh, right. we we if we can learn how we show up and what we need to be in the best space when kids are really struggling, that's really healthy. I think for me, the self care conversation. What I don't like about it is we put it all back on the teacher. Mm -hmm. Like that's what really triggers me. I think and. Like, and I think our teachers are like, oh yeah, just add that to the list of crap that's not gonna get done today, right? Um, and so we really believe in creating a co-care and even using PD time and our meeting times as we meet once a week in a building around connection and seeing each other and being with each other and not more information, right? not a, a bigger to-do list. And so that's the part for me that is really, we've got to figure out and give administrators permission to create environments where teachers can co-regulate together our paras can be involved in that, and the relationships are really held as um, the most central point right. to a process. And I think it really helps people. I mean, one, you said that stress, if I already have a million things to do today, and now you also want me to go for a run or go get a massage or, <laughs> or sit or, and meditate. Yeah, like, yeah when I mean, is that going to happen? But it also helps us understand that we do co-regulate. And so if I'm, if there's a bigger 
um, push for me to, when I am experiencing a stress response, go seek out connection, it helps us better understand how we should do that with kids yeah. too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. it's modeling what we believe across the board. But I want to want to play a little bit of a push because this is one of the things that I do is I help teachers and staff play. I, mm -hmm. I, I try to at least and give them yeah. strategies too. And, and we try different things out and, and the staff's very happy, but I know that when I leave, people will come to me and say, we're never going to do this because there's the pressure from our test scores and the pressure from this and the pressure from that. And we don't have time to play and do these silly games. But I would like to think that if we don't take the time to do that, it's, it's, the, it's the old concept and we keep saying it, but I, I think it's so so real is that when, we're, when we are on an airplane, we've got to put our own oxygen masks on first before we can help somebody else. I think that we can't help our test scores unless we're healthy. Right. And we are connected with others and that I can feel and reach out and say, hey, I'm not doing so great here. And to be able to be vulnerable like that. And I think these sorts of co-care strategies open that door. Jennifer, what about you? Yeah. Bring uh, yeah. You know, when I when I first heard that self care is dangerous, I thought, yeah, I absolutely agree. It is very dangerous, but for the reason that you are saying that it puts the onus on the person experiencing the burnout or the secondary trauma or the vicarious trauma. Um, and this is usually kind of a bigger problem than that. It's usually um, an institutional issue. It's a societal issue. Brings me back to the old saying that what is personal is political. Uh, and so I'm not saying not to do the self-care and the bubble baths or, you know, whatever you're doing. I think that's great. Um, but these are bigger issues, which some of this goes outside of my expertise. But, you know, we, we need more more bodies around. We need more people. We need more support. We need more therapists in the classrooms and really everywhere. Um, we need teachers supporting each other, just as you're saying, getting quality time, um, getting the support. We know that that increases oxytocin that cuddle hormone. And moreover, we know that oxytocin, if you can increase that, you actually crank down the knob on cortisol. So if you wanna regulate your stress hormone, the best way to do it is through supportive relationships. And that requires you looking at and talking to, listening to, and when appropriate, physical touch even. Uh, so it's not about you know isolating and going doing self-care stuff to fix yourself to come back to be perfect. And I think that message of, you know, go off and be alone and isolate, fix yourself and then come back perfect can be a, a, a not so great message for kids. I don't know that that's the way to model it, to go off and drown in your cortisol and don't get any support, stop misbehaving and then come back perfect, you know. So I think to whatever extent teachers can model the, yeah, they're overwhelmed and they need to take a little bit of a break. And then they seek supportive relationships and they do their mindfulness and their breath work. And then... They can be you know better teachers i think that's a good message to send to kids one thing that we've done here at esdac and ginger this is really kind of your baby um we've done some co-care challenges and i think that that's i'll be honest i don't um i don't always do exactly the challenges that you've put up but i've seen a shift in the office a little bit on how we are checking in with each other more often um and it's you know it's each week we have two options of things um that we can do go sit out you know either sit outside for five minutes and and take take some time to yourself or um reach out to someone and 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 go on a walk together and, and take some time and so it's it's always you always have a choice um but i've seen us start to say like hey how how are things going for you right now it's creating a culture here 
I think that's super important. I think it's a piece of it. I think that we've become intentional in recognizing and being vulnerable and sharing some things that we might not have done in the past. Yeah. Um, but that the co-care continues to to keep it in our in the forefront of our minds. Right. I think another really big thing that that kind of sticks to me a lot is one of the things I talk to people about in in schools when I go out and do this work is. Um, the things that we experience together as a, as a family when we are working together. So a school family or a SEC family here. And, um, you know, just to be pretty real, we've had a rough year as an SDAC family in, in some ways. It's been, um, we've experienced some losses and some, um, um, some struggles. struggles. For sure. Um, and I don't think that we could get through that without that process of co-care, mm -hmm. that it really is banding together and, and saying, um, how can I support you while you support this healing in yourself? And um, schools experience that too. You yeah. know, teachers are coming in with their own stuff from the outside and then dealing with stuff on the inside of the building. And we've got to be healthy. I just asked a group of teachers who are going through, uh, they're redesigning their school. And so each group that I met with yesterday, I started out the conversation because we were going to start working through a plan, a very logical uh, spreadsheet flavored plan. And I started the conversation with, um, are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? Where are you right now? And I said, how are you coming today? And not about this, but just where are you right now? And, and, and there was one lady who said, I'm mad. And I said, Thanks for sharing that. And uh, do you mind? Are you are you mad about this or is it from outside? She said from outside. I said, okay, thanks for letting us know. And so that automatically gentled the room around her because if she was going to respond in a way, then we know that she's also dealing with something else. The very fact that she was able to say that it's and huge. not put on a mask. Mm -hmm. And what I, I said, I don't want an explanation. Just mad, sad, glad, or afraid. And then we checked in at the end and she wasn't mad anymore. And she said, I'm surprised. Yeah, I was <laughs> seen. Know? And I was heard and I was cared for. Yeah. Yeah. So really the self-care is yes, we need self-care. If you if you if, if a massage works for you, take that time. If you like that glass of wine and bubble bath at the end of the night, good for you. If it's running, working out. Um, but also remember that it is we're humans, we're designed for connection. And so it, it is about that, that mm -hmm. too. You know, it's 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 a both and not a yeah. not an either or. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna kind of jump in here now and then shift a little bit and talk to um, to Jennifer about her work. So I'll tell you how I found out about her. I, um, I bought this book here, um, the Trauma Treatment Toolbox, 165 Brain-Changing Tips, Tools, and Handouts to Move Therapy Forward, um, because it was suggested to me on Amazon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess was, <laughs> I know what you shop for. Right, I know what I shop for. <laughs> I was browsing for other books, and this is one that popped up on, um, you know, you might be interested in this, and I thought, 165 tips, I, I need those. <laughs> um, so I bought it on a whim, and then I devoured it over the course of about two days, um, and there is just, my goodness, it is it is a beautiful, um, and I, I don't believe it's really written for educators, right, Jennifer? It really is for... Written for mental health professionals working right. with clients, but, you know, other people will read it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so there were definitely things in here where I thought, oh, I'm not sure how that plays out for me as somebody who's not a licensed mental health person. Um, but man, this these first couple of chapters about discussing um, just the brain was was huge. So kind of the first thing that I wondered is a term that we're hearing a lot pop up in our work is neuroinformed. 
Right. I mean, that's just becoming something we want. We want our social emotional programs to be neuroinformed, not not based on behaviorism, behaviorism and old old, old science, character, behaviorism, that kind of thing. Um, but your your approach to um, your website says your approach to your work is is neuroscience based treatment for trauma and stress. Can you kind of explain to us, like, how did you what is that? What does that approach mean? So I, I guess what I'm trying to address in that is that I think a lot of these psychotherapies that are out there, or maybe techniques that we use with kids to help them regulate emotions or behaviors, um, we're not doing things in the right order. I'm not going to say that these techniques don't work, but you have to keep in mind what's going on in the brain at different developmental phases and what people are capable of, whether they're suffering from depression, so what that looks like in the brain, and then what's the order of operations in terms of the treatment approach that you would need for depression, given what we know about the brain, or when you're working with kids, you know, and you're trying to reason with them, for instance, but they don't have a prefrontal cortex that's online, okay, if they're getting hijacked by the survival system in the brain. So these things that we're doing that might work under some circumstances, but are not going to work under others. So it's about knowing what's going on in the brain in different conditions or during different developmental phases and tailoring techniques and strategies to what's going on in the brain at those times. Right, so as we kind of think about that, um, can, you, can you just describe a little bit the difference between a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach? Like what does top-down look like and what does bottom-up look like? Yeah, so in the book and in a lot of my trainings, I distinguish between bottom-up techniques and top-down techniques. Uh, bottom-up techniques are ones where you're working through the body to change the brain. So this might be paying attention to sensations, or it might be breath work. It might be body work, like um, progressive muscle relaxation. Uh, it might involve movement, play, yoga, tai chi, anything where you're focused on sensory body. We know that those techniques work bottom up because they're changing the body, sending the signal up to the brain, and then changing the brain in certain ways that we might want, such as calming the fear center of the brain so that you feel less anxious or stressed. That's bottom up. Top down is um, what classic psychotherapy is and, and really a lot of the um, tools and techniques that educators historically have used. That's more like using reason, thinking through things, um, using logic, decision-making, problem solving. So what you're doing is you're using your mind to change your brain instead of using your body to change the brain. So top-down techniques would be thinking about consequences ahead of time, or trying to think about alternative reasons why somebody didn't smile at you in the hallway, right? It's working with your thoughts. And both are very helpful, but sometimes we jump to the top down when really we should be doing a little more of the bottom up. And by the way, your connection to other people and this co-regulation that you're talking about, this is bottom up, this is experiential. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. And I think that our cognitive, so it's the think sheets, it's the conversations all about choices and, you know, I help because that's a huge culture in our schools and mm -hmm. um, in middle class homes. And it's not that it's not about choices. It's that right. we have to make sure that it's the appropriate time for a conversation around choices and that people and kids are capable of choosing. Right. And so and if they're not. Um, so, so I just love this conversation because it's really helping people go. Hmm. And people really wrestle with that choices conversation. It can be very triggering for folks because that's what we've been basically using. That's been our go-to for decades with yeah. kids. Yeah. Right. Which is I, I think so long as a child or an adolescent isn't 
so stressed that that fear center of the brain is literally shutting down the areas that need to be online to make decisions. It can, but not under some circumstances. Yeah. So you, you said um, thinking about consequences ahead of time. I think that's something that comes a lot in schools when we're moving to trauma-informed is people think that there aren't consequences. So really kind of what you're saying is that we're not, if we're not online, if that prefrontal cortex isn't online at that time, those consequences, we're not going to be able to think about them in the moment, right? Like, oh, if I do this, then this, right? So you, you call it the cause and effect brain, right? Right. So we want to move people from bottom from a bottom up approach to get them back online so right. that we can talk about the consequence, right? So there right. are still consequences to actions, um, natural and imposed, right? Um, I think that's an interesting distinction to make for people. Mm-hmm. I think what this looks like in action is when we ask a kid, why did you do that? And they say, <laughs> I don't know. You know, we've all had that happen. That means that starting with the thinking brain isn't going to be useful right no. then. Is that no. we need to start from the sensations, from the emotional, from the connection in order to get to that place of maybe I didn't think about. It, it, to me, that's a big, a big pause sign. I don't want to call it a stop sign. Mm-hmm. What, what were you thinking? I don't know. Okay, now I know what I need to do to help you. Yeah, and I think um, to that, uh, it's been a, we've, we've had some really big challenges in, on my team um, with some work that we're doing. And uh, the last couple of weeks, every night I go home and I lay in bed and I'm like, why did I say that? Why couldn't, and every morning I get up and I'm, I pray, I'm like, please don't let me say things today that are not helpful and that could hurt people. And that just that I feel myself getting in my way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not even, I'm cognitively not able to, but I got to figure out how I get grounded again. So I need to take this book home on vacation with me. <laughs> You're welcome to. Maybe we'll get you a copy. Get you a copy, yeah. I did share a link, by the way. I shared a link into the uh, Facebook live stream right to your website, Jennifer, so that people can, one, go in and look a little further on who you are and, and some of the work that you do, and then also uh, a link to your book. So, so what, but why I brought that up is this isn't just about the kids, right? right. We oh, do this yeah. stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. We yeah. experience this on a regular basis, and so. Absolutely. I just keep coming back to, and this is, this is really a vulnerable statement, but the other day um, I was, and it's still coming up. This happened about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And my daughter came in the room. She was angry about, I told her she could have ice cream and she was angry. (laughs) She couldn't have ice cream. And so she runs up to me and she kicks me in the leg and my daughter is strong (laughs) and it hurt. And my, I was getting ready to throw, I was playing with the dog and I was getting ready to throw a tennis ball. And my, there was no thought process at all. The ball just came out of my hand because I was so shocked and I reacted and it hit her and I really didn't mean to at all. And immediately I stood there with my arm frozen, like, Oh, what am I experiencing right now? Like, okay, this is anger. This is, I feel, I feel hot. I feel mad. I feel, um, really upset. And now I feel guilt and shame for what I just experienced. And then we have to have this conversation and it keeps coming back up because it was a big moment in my house. Right. Um, and so it kind of put into my head that I've seen kids do that, Yeah. you know, and what was I thinking in that moment? I wasn't, I had just been charged at and kicked <laughs> and it was a moment. It was a reaction. It was right? a reaction. You didn't choose. I didn't, I did not did choose, not choose. To, for that yeah. ball to fly out of my hand like that. However, um, you did and, need to repair And I'm okay. Harm. I did yeah. need to repair harm and yeah. I'm okay. She's fine. There was no bruising. <laughs> there was no nothing. She cried. I cried. We moved on. Um, but it was, I get it. Like it was a moment for me to say, oh, that's what that feels like. Yeah. 
Um, it was it was it was big. It was big. Um, so something else that kind of stuck out to me in the book was, um, and I guess it goes along with this conversation on on sensations is. Um, you have a nice strategy for identifying distress in the body and like those freezing points and boiling points. Oh, yes. And I'm really curious, how can teachers, how might that be something? Because again, we're one thing we hear a lot is I'm not a licensed mental health expert. Like this is not my field of expertise. I teach kids how to read uh, and I need to be armed with some strategies to help with this. That mm -hmm. one seemed to me to be something that we could really do with kids in a safe way. Um, can you kind of talk to us about freezing point and boiling point and how we locate that yeah. distress. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the idea, and I think this is chapter three of the book, I think, um, is that we can think of our distress level on a scale of one to 100, where it's like a thermometer. And just like uh, as the heat rises, it's your distress rising. Uh, and this, yeah, you could have laminated copies for kids. Every kid could even have um, their own copy. But the idea is to know on this distress thermometer a few things. First of all, at any given time, where you're at. So um, like you were talking about um, coming into a meeting and somebody says that they're angry. Maybe they didn't put a distress score on that, but it's like right away we know that this is where this person is today. And that's good for everybody to know, but especially the person themselves to know this about themselves. So in therapy, the way the distress thermometer works is that we identify what we call uh, the boiling point, which you can kind of think about like a boiling point of water when it gets so hot. And everybody's boiling point is different, but basically the boiling point is the point at which if you go any higher than that, you're bumping up against that, you might start to feel like you're quite literally losing your mind. And what I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean losing your mind as in that fear center of the brain, the amygdala shuts down these top thinking areas of the brain. So you don't have access to choices and decision-making. If you get too worked up, too distressed, these areas go out and it's not just with kids, it's for all of us. This is just what happens. So to know about where your boiling point is and then to know if you're creeping up toward that boiling point, it's time to do something to intervene, to be aware of that, to be able to step away, to be able to breathe or whatever needs to be done. Then you can use some of those techniques that are in the book but to know when you're getting to that point. Now, the freezing point is a little bit different. It may not be as applicable to you all um, in schools, but the freezing point is the point at which if you go more low than that, if you relax beyond that, you might dissociate. This is relevant for people with PTSD or you know severe trauma histories where they can't relax. And if they relax, they either sort of space out, which you will see in kids sometimes, and then they're diagnosed with ADHD, but it might actually be trauma. So they space out or you get this boomerang effect where the distress all of a sudden goes very, very high because they got too relaxed. So you may see some of that, but day to day, probably what you're more concerned about is that boiling point. And for kids to know, are you close right now to that boiling point? I know you're mad, but you still feel in control because you can be really mad and in control or you could get really upset and start to lose a sense of control. And that distinction is key. So we talk about the hoodies pulled tight, right? It's kind of that like kids who come into class and they have their, their hoodies on and they pull them tight and they just kind of try to curl up into a little ball. To me that I always see that as hypo arousal that we are, you know, we are trying to kind of escape from, from and disconnect. Um, and I've also seen those kids when they're asked to pull the hoodie off, 
flip the desk off and, yeah. you know, and throw yeah. things as they walk out of the room. So is that kind of maybe what we might yeah. see in that range? A absolutely. Absolutely. And as you were talking about the hoodie, I, I, I'm thinking about too, like the kids who will want to be like hiding in other ways. And that distress level, I mean, it could be anger, it just could be frustration, but that actually could be a safety issue. Not, not that they're actually unsafe, but um, kids coming from homes where there's abuse and neglect, and we know safety has to be in place for any learning to take place, and lack of safety will skyrocket you past that boiling point because you're going into survival mode. So when I think about kids who are wanting to kind of move into themselves or, or like physically hide or get smaller, I immediately wonder, are they feeling safe? That would be kind of my main question. Yeah, and I think with our hoodies, like uh, there's there's some, like you said, some societal belief systems around our kids with their hoodies. And uh, we had one kid that just, I mean, he was with us for a couple of years and he did amazing. But even in August, he had that hoodie on and that was what he needed. That is what he needed. And I think so often we think it's a disrespect issue. You're not following rules. We have a dress code, that, but we're not asking the question of why. And we're also not asking our kids, what do these hoodies mean to you? Yeah. Um, and so we'll buy $300 weighted blankets, but by God, you need to take off that $18 hoodie because that is a respect issue. And I'm like, and we got kids being sent to ISS because they won't take off their hoodie. You know, I'm like, oh, well, gosh. I can see, I can empathize a little bit. I'm not saying that it's right, but I think from a, a traditional, traditional classroom view is I'm trying to get these kids to be Citizens. productive members of society Character. and you can't go into the world wearing the stinky hoodie because it's oftentimes stinky because you constantly <laughs> wear it yeah. right and that and then i'm trying to get you to come forward or the little kid who hides under the under the desk and mm. nobody's going to like you if you continue to hang out under the desks or the tables and, and i'm trying to make your life easier and so just do this and life will be easier for you it, it is right. always out of a good place. I agree with that too, Ginger. It's not people being jerks. It's right. always from a value system of we're trying to help you be successful. Right. However, right. Yeah. We yeah. are understanding that when we're dealing with bottom up, you know, these are the wrong conversations through a connected relationship. Yeah. That's how we get teenagers typically to take off the hoodie is if they trust you and they feel safe with you and you ask, Hey, I need this from you. Kids will do it. Right. So Yes. And I have a question here that I think is somewhat related is what about the kids who are always joking? And I think this is probably for older students, but you know, we've got fourth and fifth graders. We're always, you know, the class clown sort of thing. What do we, what, what's that? What are we seeing with that, that we don't see? I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, it could just be somebody's personality. There could be nothing pathological with it. So I, I'm slow to say everything reflects some sort of disorder or something. Um, but it, it could be a defense. I mean, we, we see that sometimes as a defense, same thing with like sarcasm as a defense where there's something underlying, maybe some sort of insecurity or low self-esteem or anxiety, even social anxiety. And so they're feeling the need to perform, to be accepted potentially for some kids. Uh, for some kids, it's just um, maybe a break from the stress that they feel at home. And this is the only place that they get to really be seen. So they wanna make sure that they're really seen. And they get that attention they're not getting. So it could probably be a variety of different things, um, but it can definitely be disruptive. I would uh, I would ask a child like that um, what it feels like when they are funny and, and people are laughing. What is that like for you? And know that they may not be super verbal or super descriptive about this, but just does it feel good to laugh with people? 
Is that what, you know, um, does it feel good to be seen? Um, what are, what is it like at home? Are you, are you like that at home? Uh, just to kind of get a sense of what they're getting out of it. Just like the question about the hoodie, you know, what, what does it feel like when you're wearing it? What does it feel like if I tell you to take it off right now, what does that bring up? Anger, fear, despair. What does that bring up? And it kind of gives you an idea about the functionality of behavior. If you can get them to answer, which I know is the, the hardest part of all. This reminds me, I had a conversation in a school district last week about how, um, what about when kids are really, truly just doing this to push my buttons? And that it was kind of, a, I had to spin on that for a little bit because I've been there before where I've had students in my classroom where I can, I can see, I feel like I'm pretty intuitive with a kid and I can see when dysregulation is happening or when it's more just, I'm trying to be funny. I'm trying to, and it's, it's a, it's more of just a learned behavior or a type of thing. I don't know. It's hard to explain unless you're seeing it happen, but I still go back to, there's still something missing for that kid. And so it's not always just a regulation situation because of trauma. It's not always dysregulation because I'm thinking of something that happened or you said something that triggered me. Um, what I've been learning is there's also relationship and responsibility that might be lacking for that kid. Do you feel like you're, if we think that some of our human needs are to be autonomous and connected to a group that we feel successful in, if I don't feel like I have any power right now and you're telling me to take off the hoodie, that was a relationship moment. Or if I, um, if I'm a kid who's in charge all of the time at home and I come into this classroom where I don't even get to choose when I go to the restroom, I might be vying for some responsibility in this environment and how do I contribute and where do I fit in? Cause at home I'm paying bills and here mm -hmm. I've got to sit and listen to you. <laughs> um, and so that's permission to pee. And ask permission for, yeah, <laughs> to go to the bathroom. That's hard. Yeah. Um, so that it is more than just, there's so many layers to this. If we would just be curious. And yeah, it could be the opposite. Oh, sorry. It could be the opposite of what you're saying where maybe at home, it's not that they have all this responsibility. It could be that there are no boundaries and yeah. it is, so yeah. we know kids really crave structure and containment. And there's actually certain um, psychological disorders where that's the case too. And so what it presents like is testing and pushing buttons. And you know that that's exactly what they're trying to do. But it, it's not maybe with the malintent that people assume. It's actually pushing the boundaries so that they can identify where the walls are so they can know where they fit within those walls so that they can feel contained and stable within those walls. So actually those kids sometimes are looking for stability by trying to drive you over the edge. Uh, we know that there's always a pull toward emotional congruence. So if a kid is losing their mind and you're calm, there's gonna be a tension there and there's gonna be a pull for somebody to give and who's gonna give? And the adult's job as much as you can is to have congruence toward you and not you lose it with them, but they will pull for it to see, it's almost like a test not consciously, but it is a sort of test where they're seeing, are you actually stable and can you stabilize me? Jennifer, you're a brilliant woman. We really like you. <laughs> we thought we would like you when we met you. And, um, and so I'm sitting here thinking about sixth grade for me and seventh grade. And uh, you know, I, I went in every day to class and thought, how long can I keep this teacher from starting his or her lesson plan today? But you just outlined for me what I was really needing. Yeah, and nobody knew how to give it to me. And, you know, I had a teacher that told me later when he saw me in a restaurant as a waitress, hey, I retired after you. And I'm like, <laughs> I bet you did, you know. And, but yeah, that's really helpful that um, what I needed was boundaries and I needed safety and I needed connection. Um, and so really, that's great. Wow.
This one, good stuff. I knew it was going to be. So I'm excited that I <laughs> bought this book on a whim. Um, any other questions or thoughts that have come up for, for Jennifer at this point? No? I had a good one earlier, but your great story there just kind of wiped it from my yeah. head. And it's all right. It probably wasn't that great anyway. Yeah. So I think it's really just that, I, I well, it's, I'm going to say my takeaway now, I guess, but it's just that curiosity, being curious underneath. Yeah. There are these things happening and how can I, I like this, I like this congruence thing that, but that is, there's a pull there, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to regulate with that human um, to get them to stay uh, or to get back to online, come, come, to come back, back online, online with me because that's where yeah. it's safe for them. Yeah. Um, that's big. Um, where can we learn more about you, Jennifer? Where can we, where can um, we find you? I think we've already dropped some links, mm -hmm. but my main online real estate, I guess, is my website. So, which is just my name. So it's www.jenniferswheaton.com. Uh, uh, awesome. So my, okay. Yep. We put a link to the book in there, right? Mm -hmm, we did. So our next um, kind of shifting here again, our next segment is the is um, our Hope Spotlight. I kind of have two today, if that's okay. Uh, it's really maybe more than two. Um, the first one is there's a lot of hope in the world. You all know hope is my thing, right? Um, Bridging to Resilience, our annual conference, is coming up, and um, I build the schedule for that. And I'm in charge of uh, speakers and getting everything all put together. And I was looking at it again yesterday, and I just got I'm super excited about some of the people that we have coming to speak this year. Um, and so to me, some of them are our hope spotlight. So Emily Daniels was a guest on episode two, right? Um, and so Emily is going to be speaking with us again this year, um, Emily from Hear This Now. Um, and then Julie Beam from the Attachment Trauma Network yes. is coming and that is super exciting for us. She was with us last year. She wasn't going to be able to make it this year and then some changes in the, who they were going to send. They're now going to send Julie um, and that is super exciting. And then our parent panel um, is always such a highlight that we're going to have parents there who are um, coming from a world of parenting with ACEs, um, maybe poverty backgrounds, middle class backgrounds, um, and just helping us better understand how to connect with families, which is what this is really all about. So those are kind of my hope spotlights for today around Bridging to Resilience. And then my other one is Nathan Maynard, who is going to be our, our guest next time. Um, he's the co-author of Hacking School Discipline, and we're super excited to talk to him and hear about the ways that he's been practicing restorative um, justice in his classrooms for 10 years. Um, so he's got some stuff there to share with us. So I'm excited. I think there's just really great things happening around the work that we're doing. Um, and people are going to, people are going to be coming on board with us and big shifts coming. Yeah. And I just think today, Jennifer, you brought people uh, some really significant hope and some aha yes. moments, which is what trauma informed is about is these aha moments. Like why do humans do what we do? And what, why do I do what I do? Um, I'm going to go back and watch this and take some of the phrases that you said about, you know, what is, what is that hoodie having that hoodie on? What does that feel like for you? What is being funny feel like for you? Um, that is just brilliant because we get curiosity does move us up to our uh, online brain, right? Yeah, to this, right. It does. And it also helps us be seen and heard. And I would add one, I'd like to give a shout out to Opportunity Academy in Newton. Mm -hmm. um, it's an alternative uh, school that Newton, Kansas has started. And we've got kids that are going to come. They're practicing right now with Hope Spotlight. So we've got more schools getting on board than just our learning centers with students yeah. to come and share with us what healing means to them and how a safe school environment has really helped them start to move forward in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So takeaways from today, who wants to, who wants to start their takeaway thoughts and what's, what's spinning in your head right now? 
I love how you're going to go to me first. Uh, we did. Yeah. We all looked at you. It's like natural, <laughs> natural response. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, my takeaway is, because I think my brain's been in about four different places through this, uh, trying to make sure that folks here are getting fed and that they're getting a voice live with Jennifer like we get to. Uh, but I want to I want to listen to this again. You had mentioned that because there were pieces in there that I I think are really great. I don't want I mean, red flag keeps coming up. That's not the word. Uh, it, it indicators that when I see this happening in a kid, now what? Mm. Because what I thought I knew five years ago, a year ago, today. And now as a result of this conversation is in continual shift and that I want to listen to this again. And I know I want to get connected into community more. So that's where I'm really excited and take away with our Bridging to Resilience conference. It's a, I've dropped a link into resilience.isdac.org to where we can continue to have these longer, meatier conversations. I think for me, just the idea that how can I cultivate in my life this curiosity mindset where I stop wanting to help kids be different and I start wanting to ask kids um, to tell me more about the experiences yeah. that they're having right now. Man. Yeah, wow. I think I kind of already shared one of my takeaways, but I think the other one is just um, how so many of the answers that we're looking for in classrooms, they really are out there. We just need to step out of our typical education mindset of what we were taught in our undergrad experiences and continue to ask ourselves, what, what am I missing? What am I, what are these things that I'm not quite seeing and how do I think about them in a different way um, that really addresses the human needs that are happening with kiddos and, and grownups, all and of us. Grown -ups, yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, do you have a takeaway or one thing like we, we yeah. spent some time with you today. What is one thing you really yeah. want to make sure you walk away with? Uh, yeah, that, thinking about the self-care bit. Um, I hadn't thought about that in a little while. I don't know why, but it kind of makes me think I need to call friends. Just got me thinking about a few people I should probably be reaching out to. Uh, and taking enough breaks from my own work, always important. So it's kind of where my mind is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, both to um, Jennifer and the audience that we've had. And um, we are so thankful that you took time away from, from your busy schedule to talk with us today with and us, share. Yeah. And yeah, bring um, us hope. We will be back on, um, well, let's see. So April 8th, April 8th, we will be back live here on Facebook with um, Nathan Menard from Hacking School Discipline. So we can't wait to see you. And if you want to watch this again, it will go, uh, it'll be recorded on our ESDEC page here where you're watching it now, if you're in the audience, uh, it'll be there uh, in just a few moments, but we're also going to watch it again together in a community in our ESDEC resilience team. So if you search on Facebook, ESDEC resilience team, you're going to find our Facebook group and there you'll be with community and we'll watch this again and maybe some of our past episodes as well. Sunday night? Sunday night, 8 p.m., yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, have a beautiful day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. Bye.